Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as a lead pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And I had the joy of meeting several new people this morning, so uh, if this is our first time hanging out, getting into God's Word, I'm so glad you're here with us. And um, this morning we'll be starting a new series for the summer in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter is towards the back of the Bible in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Peter to the church in Asia Minor. So before I get that, I just want to give you a heads up. Stephanie and I uh, had a great two, uh, a week or so together in Colorado. We went to Breckenridge uh, for the Acts 29 South Central Pastors Retreat, and it was a joy to connect with friends and to rest uh, and to experience light cases of altitude sickness. Um, Breckenridge was okay. I mean, pretty mountains and stuff like that. Then we went to a place that is reminiscent, I believe, of heaven um, called Telluride. Um, and there's a lot of spiritual need in Telluride, and so I just started looking around saying, maybe we plant C3 Telluride. Um, a lot of need there, a lot of need. And, uh, you know, for a one-bedroom, one-bath efficiency condo, it's only $765,000. And so we'll start raising money now uh, for uh, C3 Telluride in 2030, uh, and we'll need to raise about $8 million of uh, seed money to uh, do that. So... Um, so instead of a building here, we're playing, I'm kidding. So uh, overall, it was uh, a great time to go and connect and experience God's creation um, and to just enjoy. Uh, while Telluride was indeed beautiful, uh, this is indeed our home. Uh, I think it would be like eating filet mignon every night if you lived there. Eventually you would enjoy it as much. And so um, it's a joy to be back with you. Not that you aren't steak either. It's just you're juicier. Maybe a ribeye. Okay, so... We're going to be in 1 Peter, and, and one of the reasons I believe the Lord's kind of led us to 1 Peter is uh, 1 Peter predominantly talks about experiencing joy in the midst of suffering. And the idea of suffering is often foreign, even in the church today, especially in upwardly mobile areas like the Woodlands Magnolia area. Suffering isn't something that we want to lean into. It's something that we work very diligently to avoid. Part of the root issue with us not understanding or rightfully engaging in suffering is because we have a low view and a poor theology of salvation. The doctrine of salvation, soteriology is the big name. If you want to impress your friends tomorrow at the coffee pot at work, be like, yesterday we were talking about soteriology, uh, you know, and let your friends go kind of cross-eyed and, and think you're even weirder than you are, then say that. But the doctrine of salvation is key in understanding the gospel. What does salvation mean? How is it applied? How is it fulfilled? What is it realized? And then as we have that new lens of God's salvific work in us in a point in time and at the end of time, we can begin to approach suffering and struggles and persecution with a different lens. Not that it's going to remove the pain or that it will be less difficult or that we won't have dark moments, but I hope for us that we are people that begin uh, to really engage the idea that we can enjoy God and hope in God and persevere towards God for the purpose of His glory in and through not only the good times, but also in the midst of persecution and suffering. Um, the letter that, uh, that Peter wrote uh, to the churches spread out throughout Asia Minor uh, were penned roughly A.D. 62 or 63. Um, and notice it's written by the Apostle Peter. So the disciple Peter was a student of, a learner of Jesus. 
at the commissioning of Christ and then at the proclamation in Acts 2 at Pentecost, we then see him marked and identified and anointed as an authorized vendor, if you will, an authorized agent of Jesus to communicate the gospel. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to an authorized dealer of like a cell phone company or something like that. Uh, around the corner, there's an authorized dealer of Verizon. It's not quite a Verizon store, but they're authorized to use the brand, right? And so Peter is not Jesus. He is not perfect. He did not become absolutely flawless after Christ ascended into heaven. He's still a man. We see him being rebuked in Galatians. Uh, Paul's letter to Galatians. Like Paul, it was important enough for Paul to emphasize that he had to rebuke Peter for being kind of racist. Right? So this isn't a perfect man. He's a man who's serving a perfect God, sealed by God, sent by God, and a vessel for God's message to God's people. And so that's who we're hearing from. He's the guy that denied Christ three times. He's the guy that started walking on water, shifted his gaze from Jesus, started sinking into the water. And so he's writing to them in through, uh, through the lens of persecution and therefore suffering. Now this persecution they're facing isn't just a global persecution through the Roman Empire. There were pockets of persecution under different leaders over time. This is an informal persecution of basic distaste, distrust, and disliking of Christians in their culture. I mean, Christians during that time, they were a bit weird. They would share with each other as they had need. The Jewish people didn't like the Christians because they believed they were preaching something that was not true. The non-Jewish people didn't like Christians because they thought they thought they were better than the Roman Empire and they kept refusing to worship their false gods. And so it's not that, it's not that foreign to what our experience is in an increasing manner. Now in Texas, we're a little bit behind in the Bible Belt buckle. But persecution is here and persecution will come because of faith in Jesus Christ. So that, that's a real reality in here. But additionally, suffering will occur and will happen because of global effects of sin on life. The sins of others, the sins that is inherent, the fact that we all will one day die in this life. And so it's important for us to see these things and understand what it means to be saved and the fact that we are being saved and that we will be saved in the context of understanding persecution, suffering, and death. How we suffer through hardship is reflective of the depth and the grip of which our faith really has. Now, the way we typically view suffering right, is avoidance. And so what what we find ourselves doing, and we see the church doing that, we see Christians doing this, there's times where we're compromising what is true for the sake of comfort. So we compromise because we don't want to suffer for standing up for the gospel and what is true. However, sometimes we compromise based on wisdom. So my hope is, as we study these next several weeks through 1 Peter, our wisdom will grow as we engage the world with, this, with the gospel message so that we're not going out being, as I've quoted before, jerks for Jesus, telling it like it is without the context of relationship and being the Facebook prophet that no one likes. Well, I don't care if they like me. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Then sit face to face and have a conversation. That's another sermon that's boiling. 
No soapbox. All right, we're moving forward. Ultimately, we see this purpose of finding the source of hope and joy in the accomplished work of Jesus in our suffering because of the future hope we have in Him, which is our salvation. And the main point we'll see in the first 12 verses this morning in chapter 1 is that God is sovereign, in control, powerful, always mindful over salvation through suffering. Salvation through suffering shouldn't be a foreign idea because Jesus Christ suffered to purchase our salvation. He was persecuted and He suffered and He died and He was buried, left for dead, and He rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan so that through Him we would not perish separated from God, but obtain and inherit this eternal life given to us through Jesus. So let's begin in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I always mess this up. I practiced it like four times. Bithynia. We'll just go with that. I'll say it confidently and just have to own it. Bithynia. I have the mic. Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That is an intro. I mean, can you imagine someone's voicemail message when you call them? Hey, this is Casey. I can't come to the phone right now, but I want to say to all of you, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, please leave a message. Some of you might call me more often and not be mad when I don't answer. Like, what's He going to greet me with? It's like a Jesus fortune cookie when I call that guy. Man, that's wordy. But then he says, here's the blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is the effect of this salvation? This grace and peace in a multiplying manner. See, most of us want our health and our finances to increase in a multiplying manner. That's what we're going for. We approach God to have our wishes given to us in multiplying ways. That's not the Gospel. This grace, this unmerited, unearned favor of God and the resulting peace that surpasses understanding be the result of what's coming in this letter. My prayer for Christ Community Church is that the grace of Christ, the peace of Christ, would be experienced in the context of life and suffering in increasing ways. But we can't miss the theology that's jam-packed in the first two verses. And some of you know me and are like, oh gosh, he's been on vacation, so he's going to get a little long and preachy. I'll try to be concise, but I want us to see this. I want us to see just in this that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, is saving the elect from all peoples around the world. All people groups around the world. In, in unity in the Godhead. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God, I used to hear taught and preach that foreknowledge of God meant that God knows who is going to be born and what they will choose. That's not the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God in the context of Scripture is that from the moment that He spoke everything into creation, 
God, the Father, Son, and Spirit were working in unity for the sake of His glory, knowing what the price would be to be paid for the salvation of those who would believe. Early on in my faith, I heard that, okay, you trust Jesus, then the Spirit of God comes into you. You heard that before. May you believe that. You on your own trust Jesus, a person who the Bible says is dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Not in a coma. Not on life support. Necros. Only Greek word today. Dead. The foreknowledge of God. The election of God. I'm not saying we have to all be on the exact same page wrestling through it. Here's literally how I struggled with the doctrine of election early in my faith. I was about mid, early mid-20s. My wife Stephanie, the Lord has blessed me with her. She read a book or two, read Scripture, read the Romans, and was like, yep. Predestination election makes sense. She's just... Not that it was easier. She's like, you're chosen, you're not. That, that wasn't, that's not our job. But in the idea of the doctrine of election... But for me, man, I grew up and man, I was American... I get to vote. I get to choose. And so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, literally I spent a few weeks like this. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I said I'm going to live like I'm a Calvinist. Believing in election and predestination. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I'm going to live as an Arminian. Sunday, I'm just going to show up and worship and see how it pans out. Literally. Same thing as I was wrestling through eschatology in times. I, I would try, I mean, because I'm an ENFP, I'm a feeler. I'm like, what does it feel like to be a Calvinist? Hmm. What does it feel like to be an Arminian? Anxiety attacks. I have to do for God, I have to do for God, I have to keep, I have to work, I have to work, I have to work. So tired. But understanding that God is not a reactive God, and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do now? He's a God who's sovereign over all things. He sees. He loves. He cares. It's beyond what we can fully comprehend. There's mystery involved, but He's communicated these truths for what? The sanctification. The, the changing. The, the, the refining. So, the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. The regeneration, the changing of heart and ability to taking out a heart of stone, replacing it with a heart of flesh, so that we who once would say Christ is foolishness and wrong and a lie, then be able to see that He is holy and good and right and life-transforming. So by the Spirit, we're then empowered and enabled to hope in the Son in obedience, that's a thing we miss. I was talking with someone recently about a hot topic, you know, biblical, uh, cultural situation going on. And she was excusing a pattern of sin by saying, well, we're all sinners. I know. I'm aware. I live with myself and I live with three humans. But part of the Gospel isn't going on and sinning so that grace might abound all the more. Part of the Gospel is when we sin, as we mature, we become more aware of our sin and repent sooner. 
change our mind and our direction, call sin what it is, and hope in our Savior. Paul, Peter says here, in the sanctification of the Spirit for this transformation is so that we would obey Jesus. And for the covering, the sprinkling with His blood, the ongoing covering, the ongoing grace, through that may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's writing to non-Jewish believers primarily, talking about God's plan, not just based on our responses, based on His good will. Since God is Creator, God is owner. Since God is owner, He has the right to do whatever He desires. I used to think, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? But as I've gotten to know the, the character of God and the holiness of God and the patience of God and the long-suffering of God, I wonder how can a loving God and a holy God let any sinner into His presence? And so what we could not do, He did through His Son, Jesus his blood poured out, His resurrection for sure, His impending return forthcoming, His blood covering, and His grace applied. In view of that, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a conversation to argue over a cup of coffee or mineral water or a pint. My understanding of Scripture is that the Father calls, elects, the Spirit regenerates those who will believe by empowering and enabling us to believe and that Jesus, His, His grace is applied as we respond in faith through repentance. And that's why we worship Jesus and not a mirror on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings should not be merely a reflection of your preference, but an invitation to your Savior. Worship God. The triune God is saving the elect from all peoples around the world. We'll go on to 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His, who? Who's His? God and Father. According to the Father's great mercy. What did He do? He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God has caused us to be born again. I understand the logic of if you have to earn your salvation, then it's up to you to keep it. I understand the logic of thinking that way. And so if your theology is in line with that, that may be why your faith journey, even over 50 years, is a roller coaster experience. Because when you're having a good day, you feel close to God. When you're having a bad day, you feel far from God. When you understand that God is the author and perfecter of your faith, He is equally as near when you're bad as when you're good. When you have a positive day or a bad day. When you read your Bible or you forget. God is faithful even when we are faithless because God will not deny Himself. That's in 2 Timothy 2. Our hope is then therefore in God's faithfulness, which should not then compel us to licentiousness, doing whatever the heck we want, because ah, God will forgive us anyway, but rather through gratitude and love, be compelled to obedience by the help of the Spirit. God's great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? 
Look at this. Underline it. Circle it. Hey, if you're not feeling hope today, or you're feeling a little hopeless, or you're overwhelmed, circle this promise. He has called us. He has saved us to a living hope. It's, the gospel is not just about being saved from hell or saved from suffering. It's being called to something. What is this? What are we called to? To a living hope. Not a dead hope. Not a dead Christ still on the cross, but a resurrected hope. A future hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you dismiss the resurrection, we are to be pitied, as Paul says. Through the resurrection, we are then brought into a living hope. Now, hope goes beyond just feeling. There are days where, I don't know about you, I don't feel hopeful but the next morning when I stumble out of bed and make my coffee and I open the Word, that is evidence of hope. It's living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. So you're saved from death in an eternity in hell, separated from God, receiving the wrath of God, to Christ, which is defined as an inheritance that doesn't go away, it is not flawed, it doesn't diminish over time, and it's secured and kept for you. If I came to you and said, I have an investment opportunity for you that is of infinite value, that will never go up or down and will always remain the same in enjoyment and in experience and longevity, I don't know who wouldn't sign up. Now those of you who are suspicious, like, <laughs> that didn't happen. And on earth, you're right. But this is the hope. Christian, this is the hope. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet convinced that Christ is Lord, this is the eternal promise. It's the hope we lean forward in, we fall forward in, we persevere towards. It's imperishable. It doesn't go rotten or wear out. It's undefiled. It remains Equally as perfect, it's unfading and it's stored and kept secure in heaven. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance and those who believe by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Talk about a party favor. Most of us are living our lives as if this is the party and heaven is the favor. A little bag of afterthought junk you buy online or at the dollar store because you don't want to be a rude host. If you think about the social economics or the financial economics, you spend 15 to $30, depending on how generous you are, 
on a gift, and you get a bag of junk. Don't, be, don't, don't miss me. I've been to some of y'all's birthday parties. Y'all are on point. This isn't the party. And so later in 1 Peter, as we go through, and says, we are aliens and strangers. We are sojourners. When he talks about the dispersion, he's talking about the scattered believers throughout. But we live, don't we? We order this life, we plan for this life as if this is the party, heaven's the party favor, yeah, it'll be okay. No, that's the party, he's the prize, that's the hope. So when you're faced with life and death situations, or you give an opportunity to lovingly proclaim truth, that's what we have to be focused on to endure what might come. But look at this, this salvation, this prize of future salvation and hope. It's guarded by God. It's guarded by God. It's guarded by God, not your faithfulness. We are not obeying Jesus and pursuing Jesus for the sake of maintaining our salvation because we have been, are being, and will be saved by Jesus. We are then liberated from the clinch and the hold of sin to live in holiness for the glory of God and the enjoyment of him more, not to earn it or keep it. Christ died on the cross. Do you really think your quiet time is an adequate repayment? Your 2.5% you drop in the basket is an adequate repayment for the eternal suffering of our Savior for the good of our eternal souls? Stop being transactional with God. The transaction has been paid. Live now in enjoying increasing enjoying in an increasing relationship with Jesus. Which leads us to the second thing, that God empowers and sustains our perseverance even through our suffering. We see that God empowers and He sustains our perseverance even through our suffering. As many of you know, we, we have a family in the church, the Benitez family, who went through a month and the NICU, roughly about a month, right, Paul? And many of us were encouraged by Paul and Stephanie's perseverance and their faith and their strength. And, and I've, I've voiced that encouragement to him. But don't put that weight on them. Because they would want you to know, and I want you to know, that their perseverance and the strength they had was sourced and promised and fulfilled through the Lord. In their weak moments, in their strong moments, in their sad moments, in their doubts, let's not place on other humans our hope that we have in Christ. That's unwise, and it will disappoint. When we see someone suffering well and persevering, we see Christ's promise being fulfilled. When we see people suffering and struggling and not doing well, we see the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus to come minister the Gospel to our brothers and sisters who are suffering. He is our hope. And God empowers and sustains our perseverance even through suffering. Have you been through a hard situation because of your faith? or because of life, or because of sin, and gone through it and looked back and said, I don't know how we made it. I can see some families in here who I know have been through hard things, and by God's grace, our church showed up in some substantial ways, 
And I see some of you in here who have been through some hard things, and we drop the ball. So the church, being the bride of Christ, the expression of Christ, are increasingly maturing in how we can best come alongside and love and help, but we will fail at times. That's why our hope for perseverance isn't found in the people of God, but in God. It's not that we don't need each other. We're spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. We're seeing the gospel applied in our lives. We are strong for others who are weak, and others are strong for us when we are weak. In the synergy, as we come in hope and trust in Christ, we the people of God come alongside, empowered and sustained for our perseverance, even when we are suffering by Jesus Himself. So that's where we get this idea in verse 6, in this you rejoice. In the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this hardness, the hard times in life, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while the season is relatively short compared to eternity. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You rejoice in the fact that your trials, your suffering, your hardship is the workshop of God's mercy and grace where He's maturing us, stretching us, growing us, compelling us toward the future fulfilled hope of the promise of our faith that as we read earlier and is being emphasized again, will not perish, is undefiled, and will not ever end. That then is the view that we can have through the midst of hardship, depression, suffering, persecution. But the result is a depth in our praise and our glory. Part of our version of suffering out here causes us to avoid entering into suffering with others. Part of our aversion to suffering in our culture causes us to avoid suffering with others. I mean, I've gotten calls where people are dead in our church or sick or have cancer. My first response isn't like, yes, let's go! Most of the time, my response is feeling just exposed for my inadequacies. And then I get dressed, or I put down what I'm doing, and I go. Part of being Christian and loving others well is hoping in this glory we have in Christ and the faith that we have in Him, that at the right time, He'll give us the words to say or not say, even in hard things. But if we live our lives in constant avoidance of being around those who are suffering or suffering ourselves, our faith will always remain shallow. And we'll find ourselves bickering and fighting about really silly things in the church. And we won't live into our mission of we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. And if you haven't read the Bible in a while, just so you know, a lot of the growth that happens happens through suffering, yours or someone else's. What do you guys think for a billboard? 
Welcome to C3. Come and suffer well. Be flooding with people. while back we were looking at the budget for the church and giving's been down and I'm not saying this as a giving talk. And we said, well, what if we just cut out donuts? I know some of you are about to pack up and go right now. You're like, put a cash cup out. A few of you granola crunchy people are like, finally, quit killing people. Right? I mean, if we remove these comforts, Will we still be here? If I preach a bad sermon, or I'm off, or I go too long, or I go too short, or use the wrong translation, or say the wrong words, or say something you don't agree with, can we long suffer together? Out here, no. We avoid discomfort. We leave. We avoid suffering. We're missing the joy. The tested genuineness of your faith. Some of you who have been grieved by various trials, like various. And one thing we have to think through is like, well, we're in America, it's not like we're in Kenya or blah, blah, blah. Whoa, slow down. Might even be accurate, but suffering is subjective, not objective. It's experiential. What people are experiencing in their suffering, we shouldn't downplay that, we should call them to more. We should meet them where they are in their suffering and not chastise them, but invite them to take a step towards Christ and hoping in Him. Not say, well, you know what? I know you're hungry and haven't had lights for a few days, but over in China, we're not in China. We're in America. We've got power. We've got food. We've got the church. Though, verse 8, hey, this is going to be, slow down and listen. If you haven't been listening, you've been tuning out, you've been thinking about lunch or fantasizing about lunch, depending on how hungry you are. Listen. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation wasn't finalized and complete in your life when you prayed the prayer at camp or at church or Bible study or on the street or in your closet or wherever. Salvation is being worked out, the, 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 the working of that. Ultimately, salvation was completed on the cross at the resurrection of Christ, but salvation, as it's being applied through sanctification, is working towards the ultimate goal of glorification, meaning our new heavenly bodies before a holy and perfect God. That struggle will be painful. It will stink at times. Are you always saying, God, if I could only see you, I would obey you? Read the Gospels. People saw Jesus and rejected Him. You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is your joy inexpressible right now and filled with glory? Is it? Your season's mine is not. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, at the end of this life, this prize, this glory, this joy. You want to know how to grow and mature in joy through suffering? 
having your joy rooted not in your own experience or feeling, but your joy rooted in God's faithfulness and sovereignty over our salvation. That He's got this. On days you don't, He does. You want to know how to overcome temptation to sin is knowing that that strength to say no, to turn it off, to turn away, to drive away, to put it down, whatever it is, is from Him. Your temptation is an invitation to worship. You either worship God by obeying or worship the enemy who wants to destroy your souls. Our response to temptation ought to be prayer and confession, not not ignoring God's Spirit. The salvation of your souls. So our faith being tested and refined is extremely valuable because it results in praise, glory, and honor of Jesus. The first way to say, I don't experience this inexpressible joy. I know many Christians who have a lot of content and many years under their belt that are very not joyful. Their life is preaching a gospel other than the one they proclaim. A lack of joy in Christ is evidence in my soul my need to confess and to lean into, and to hope in, and to fall forward through disciplines and habits that I know. So if you're here today and you're acting joyful when you show up, quit acting. Admit it. Confess it. That's the first place is saying, I don't have joy in Christ. Which then leads to great exploration and discussions of, do you know Him? And maybe you do know Him, but maybe you've stopped knowing Him deeper and more because you didn't believe digging deeper into the hope of the Gospel and doctrine and Scripture is not necessary. All you need to do is trust Jesus. But all you need to do is trust Jesus in a very immature and informal way. It's not going to sustain you through cancer, through persecution, through disease, and through death. The roots of doctrine go deep into the soil of grace that bring out fruitfulness in our lives. I know plenty of people that know a lot about God, but their life does not preach the gospel of God. I know their seasons, mine doesn't. And so we must be mindful of that. Being tested and being refined is valuable because it increases our joy in God now and points towards our future joy in Him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8 through 11 said it this way, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count those things as dung, as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This gift of faith empowers and enables us to hope in the righteous One, that in Him we find our righteousness. Your righteousness is found in Christ in you. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him. This is the aim that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that by any means I might enjoy the fullness and the fruit and the victory of salvation. No one in isolation, especially on their own, is able to do this. Even with the Spirit of God 
coming alongside. He helps us in isolation. But He also blesses us with fellow wanderers, aliens and strangers to encourage us along the way. I finished reading The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom while I was on vacation. If you have not read it, read it. There were moments where she would talk about her rage and her anger in a prison camp and her sister Betsy, I like to refer to as Enoch, just taken up to glory eventually. It was like, oh, I hope to open a center one day to show them the love of Christ. Corey was like, oh yeah, these other people suffering with us. No, she meant the guards and the Nazis. I don't often know that kind of love in my heart. So, the hiding place. I know I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian 20 years. I'm a little late to the game. But man, Stephanie just kept saying, she knew I had been struggling the last few months. She said, read it. Let your faith be encouraged by another. And reading that testimony, I'm not walking around with a tattoo of Corey Ten Boom on my arm. I'm walking around with the hope in the Christ that still is victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And the Spirit of God that fills me, that filled her and her sister and her family to persevere, to fall forward. Last two verses. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. Number three, the perseverance of faith in and through Christ is a fulfillment of the prophecies of old. How did Isaiah and Jeremiah, who wrote Jeremiah and Lamentations, how did they fall forward and persevere and suffer well because the Spirit of Christ gave them vision that would be on their life of the future promises and glories that would be fulfilled in God's elect through salvation, through Jesus? Some of you are rocking babies and you don't see the vision. The vision is that you're establishing trust that the house of God, the people of God are safe. And they might move away and go somewhere else, but you're a link in the chain of the salvation of God working out His calling of His elect. With the fours and fives. I, I don't work up there because I'm preaching right here. I've heard horror stories in very cute ways. You miss the point that the seeds you are scattering may not be watered by you and may not be brought into harvest by you, but some scatter the seed, another water it, but God brings the harvest. See, the prophets of old believed the promises of God about the faithfulness of God, about the future glories of Christ, and the proclamation of His Word, knowing that God's Word does not return void, but bears fruit in its due time. And so we rock babies and we play with kids and we put up with nonsense. We volunteer with youth and we think that it's all for what at times? We raise teenagers. Teenagers are raised by sinful parents. If your hope is not in the future glories of which were found in Christ Jesus foretold by the prophets and your hope is not in that, you will despair. Your source of joy is not found in right now necessarily, but in the future. And for those of you who are linear planners, I want to throw you off a little bit. Our God is very ordered and very broad 
and very, at times, does what he wants at his timing. And if you're trying to control the one who controls, you will feel out of control. But if you submit to the one who's even more controlling than you, because for your good, you'll experience joy. Trusting in the character of God for your good. This is an idea I want us to carry on through this time, through this book, this summer. Suffering strengthens and refines our faith. Suffering reminds us of our future hope of glory. And suffering testifies to the gospel to those around us. So if you're suffering, even if it's a depression or an addiction or hurt or an offense done to you and you're a follower of Jesus, invite God instead of giving you answers to why. Because ultimately, God uses all things for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Even if we cannot see it now, we hope in Him. And so instead of asking why, we ask God, what are you doing that I might be a participant in it? And we have our future hope. And that's why we hope, and that's why we begin to hope and believe in the fact that God is sovereign over salvation through our suffering for His glory and for your joy. Let's pray.